Good evening, everyone. Hello. You can hear me. I think a few are still getting uh, refreshments in the back. That's okay. I'm Althea Brooks, and I'm Director of Lifetime Learning in the Office of Engagement. It's a pleasure to welcome so many of you out tonight. This Engaging the Mind program is um, being offered to you as part of the MLK celebration, the community MLK celebration. Uh, we're pleased to have uh, so many of you here. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King, he devoted his life to quality, and he had strong belief in education, education for everyone, equal education. He wrote an article when he was at Morehouse back in uh, 1947. He said, the function of education is to teach one to think intensively and to think critically. Intelligence plus character, that is the goal of true education. So tonight, I think you'll be learning quite a bit from Dr. Mar Maurice Wallace. He'll be up in just a few minutes to, to teach us about Dr. Martin Luther King's speeches. We're thrilled that you were able to join us. This program is just one of many being offered over the next two weeks as part of the community MLK celebration. Special thanks to Dr. Martin, uh, Mar Mar uh, Marcus Martin, uh, for his, him and his team and all the work that he's done. He's over here waving in the corner. Um, they've worked tirelessly over the last, uh, really, six months or so putting together uh, many of these programs and building websites and helping to promote these programs. So I hope you will take full advantage of all the wonderful opportunities, educational opportunities. Before we begin, if you'll just go ahead and take a moment and silence the ringer on your phones. Just power it down. Enjoy the talk. We also passed out uh, orange feedback cards. If you'll take a moment at the end of this program and uh, give us your comments and your feedback, they, your comments will help us plan uh, to plan future programs. This lecture is being recorded and it'll be made available on the Lifetime Learning uh, website. So if you want to download it, listen, and share it with friends and family. I'm going to introduce or turn things over to uh, Landon Wilkins. He'll be introducing our speaker for the evening. But before he comes up, I wonder if we might uh, make uh, Dr. Uh, Maurice Wallace feel really, really welcome before he even comes to the stage. Go ahead and give him a round of applause. So Landon's going to come up and introduce our speaker for the evening. Again, welcome. So glad you're here. Good evening, everyone. It is my privilege to introduce our speaker tonight, Professor Maurice O. Wallace. He graduated from Washington University in St. Louis with a BA in English Literature and he went on to receive his PhD from Duke University. Before he came to UVA in August of 2014, he taught at Yale and Duke. I was lucky enough that fall semester to have a last minute time conflict. I had to switch into his class at the last minute. At the same time, he had to inherit the class 
from another professor at the last minute. On that first day, he asked us what we were passionate about. He asked every single person what they were passionate about. Some people answered words. Other people said helping others. And I said the Kennedys. <laughs> Don't worry, but I've uh, grown a lot since then. <laughs> At UVA, Professor Wallace teaches classes on African-American literature and cultural studies, including classes on Spike Lee and the prolific James Baldwin. He is currently the associate director of the Carter G. Woodson Institute of Afri for African-American and African Studies. He has also served on the, on the um, editorial boards for American Literature and the Yale Journal of Criticism. His present research and writing agenda includes a monograph on early photography in the making of African-American identity on the heels of the U.S. Civil War and a critical exploration into the sound of Martin Luther King Jr.'s voice. I've come to realize that Professor Wallace's passion is passions. As we listen to him tonight, we will see and hear this passion. His work on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is perhaps so captivating because he is studying the impact of passion on voice. Tonight's lecture, King's Vibrato, Speech, Power, and the Sounds of Blackness, Professor Wallace will discuss the power of amplified speech and ambient sound in the making of King's memory. Please help me welcome my teacher, my mentor, and my friend, Professor Maurice O. Wallace. Good evening, everyone. Oh, no. I am particularly grateful for having this opportunity to share some recent thoughts and ideas about an American icon, one whom I think as Americans we all presume to know very well. And while we may well know a great deal about Martin Luther King, Jr., born Michael King, I want to suggest that there's more, much more, to know and learn. And I hope tonight that I can sensitize your ears anew to hear again, a voice that on some level is already very familiar to us. And yet, familiarity can breed a kind of 
deafness. I hope to conjure and surface something that will help us hear that voice again. Let me thank Althea and our technical wizard, Andrea, um, and those who are uh, hosts of this event tonight. Of course, I have to thank Landon, of whom I am exceedingly proud. He is um, an archivist extraordinaire. There is nothing that I have sought in any archive that he was not able somehow to get his hands on. Uh, and I'm very, very proud of him uh, and the work that he is doing in the Curry School, and it's just the beginning. Um, I want to also thank all of you for taking this holiday so seriously, for being introspective and thoughtful, and I go so far as to say for being neighborly, which is to say to have in mind the well-being and the flourishing of lives beyond your own. I think, to a great degree, that the legacy of Dr. King is a legacy of serious, committed, risky neighborliness. And so you've been generous enough to give me a hand why don't we give you a hand? Tonight, the lecture I want to provide is extracted from an ongoing project of mine on Dr. King, one that I hope will finally be the book that I had for many years been longing to read, but could not find on the bookshelf. Suddenly, abruptly, it came to me that I would have to write the book I wanted to read. There is a certain kind of selfishness in this, but, but it is nevertheless a book, a project that is inspired in part by King's genius in sharing in the public sphere some very personal convictions about his private faith and the extent to which one's own theology, let's say, about neighborliness had its consequences in our material, everyday, social, political, economic, and moral lives. In a sense, this project has been with me, though I did not know it, all my life. Which is to say that my father was a sometime activist in his mid-twenties in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, during the greater part of King's 
career. I myself was not yet born uh, when King was assassinated. Um, I was not long in coming, however. Um, but as a result, I spent my childhood listening to the voice of Dr. King, played nearly weekly on what we refer to in my house as the hi-fi, the console, which looked much like a large piece of furniture, a dresser, and yet it was audio equipment with a record player for the playing of 33s and 45s. Some of you remember that technology. And of course, also an AM, FM radio inside, and a good deal of storage for 45s and 33s. My father somehow acquired a copy of this vinyl. This is the cover of an LP recorded shortly, recorded of course during the March on Washington, released by Gordy Records. Now once I say Gordy, many of you will recognize that Gordy Records was a division of Motown. This LP was not the first recording of Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech. In fact, it was the third recording. Gordy Records recorded the second recording in Detroit in June of 1963, where King was part of an earlier march that included the likes of the legendary Reverend C.L. Franklin, father, of course, of the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. The first recording of the I Have a Dream speech was a few months prior to the June event at a high school in a gym of a segregated school in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. That speech, the first public rendering of I Have a Dream, was non-professionally recorded and rediscovered in 2015 and now is in the archives of the North Carolina State University. Each of these recordings is distinctive. Distinctive because of the locations, the varying locations in which this speech was delivered. In the first case, it was delivered in a high school auditorium. The sound, therefore, is going to be different than the sound in Detroit out, outdoors on a bright sunny day and still different from that which would be given on the National Mall in August of 1963. Now, these three different recordings I call to your attention precisely because they help me to make a claim about sound that is actually broader 
than the sound of King himself. What I want to suggest about sound is that sound is historical. Or to put it differently and more broadly, history itself is not mute. History sounds, or better, history resounds or resounds. The tenor of an original moment. As I said, I have been living with this project virtually all of my life without knowing, hearing Dr. King's speech weekly, virtually every Saturday morning, I woke up to the sound of this recording of Dr. King's voice. His voice, therefore, had long been with me before it dawned on me to consider a project, a writing, a reflection, both critical and personal, about the power of Dr. King's voice. This project is a little less interested in the content of Dr. King's speeches. It's more interested in what one philosopher, French philosopher Roland Barthes calls the grain of his voice. Now, the sound of King's voice was with me, has been with me for quite some time. His his image has also been with me. And in fact, I'm going to tell you just a bit about the ways in which his image has lived with me before I speak more broadly about a variety or, or a class of photographic images of Dr. King, which will be the background to a broader conversation about the voice of Dr. King. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive, that we're here to talk about sound, but I want to introduce sound by talking a little bit about the visual. I want you to bear with me on this. There is a method to this madness, but I want you to bear with me um, and simply know that as long as I have been with the sound of Dr. King's voice, I have also been with the image of Dr. King in two particular um, ways. There's the private way, the domestic way. Inside my home, besides this, um, this recording, which I heard on a nearly weekly basis for many years, my father also acquired a plaster cast profile of Dr. King, made by some amateur artisan nearby um, that was nearly three-dimensional in form, yet flat on its back and of such a size and form that it more likely resembled a plaque than a bust. And so this plaque slash bust of King hung on the dining room wall in our home. King had a very 
um, uh, serious, iconic status in my, in my house, as I've explained. But not only was he very visible in my home, he was also visible, especially visible, at church. Some of you will know before I even say the form of King's visibility in our small working class Methodist church in Hartford County, Maryland, about 30 minutes northeast of Baltimore. In our church, King had as much visibility as Jesus. One had only sit in the pews, reach forward a bit, and pick up the hand fan donated by the local funeral home, Bullocks, and see either on this colored cardstock fan, either the image of a portrait, a portrait painting to be precise, of King, or an image of King alongside the Kennedys. For years and years and years, King vied with Christ for, uh, for the subject, the visual subject of the fans which were donated annually by the local black funeral home in my community. I don't know if those fans are still made, but I suspect that there are a few of you in this room who remember those fans. I see Dr. Martin shaking his head. Um, and um, and there, may be, there may be others. So let me talk a bit before talking more about the sound or the grain of Dr. King's voice. I want to talk about his image. Now, of course, this image is also an iconic one of the March on Washington. I share this one as well precisely because you see the vinyl, and if you see the vinyl and you have some experience with Motown, it will be almost nostalgic. Right? to actually see that purple and yellow label. And you remember Gordy Records. You remember Motown. I should add, by the way, that um, at the time of this recording, Motown is also releasing recordings by Stevie Wonder, by Martha and the Vandellas, by The Miracles, um, um, and The Temptations, and the list of iconic Motown artists goes on. Now imagine how important it is when one wants to take up the sound of King's voice, how important it is to, and, and, and fortuitous it is, to be able to situate the release of this sound of King's voice 
in the context of Motown producing these other very important artists of the, 20, uh, of the 20th century. So in a way, it's Motown that invites us to consider the sound of King's voice and the possibility of contextualizing King's voice in a musical or near musical tradition. I might ask you to be reminded that King's mother was a musician, the church musician at his father's church, that his wife, Coretta, was classically trained, a vocalist, who regularly gave freedom concerts to support the Southern Christian Leadership Conference presided over by her husband. You might also remember, not the Queen of Soul, but the Queen of Gospel Music, Mahalia Jackson, was someone who traveled regularly with Dr. King and sang before his speeches and his sermons. She was herself deeply committed to the civil rights movement. And legend has it that Mahalia was largely responsible for egging on Dr. King at the March on Washington that would lead to the brilliant oratorical performance that we know today. King's original plan was to go with another set of ideas. King regularly traveled with um, set pieces. So depending on his audience, depending on location, he could call upon any number of oratorical set pieces and like a wizard sort of put them together in some fluid fashion that came off as if it was always planned that way. He was moving in a certain direction when Mahalia, sensing the mood of the audience as only a gospel singer can, egged him on off to the side, tell them about the dream, Martin. Having herself been in Detroit to hear it originally, or to hear its second version, tell them about the dream. And Martin King, being the capable speaker, the capable orator that he was, shifted set pieces. And, of course, the rest is oratorical, and sonic history. But let's go back for a moment to the visual king. Because it's the visual king that helps us to appreciate better and more sensitively the sonic king. Though I have spent the first several minutes of this conversation asking you to think again about the March on Washington and that I have a dream speech, my focus 
in the project at large and tonight will be more keenly set upon the, the only other speech of Dr. King's that can be said to have matched the I Have a Dream speech in impact, eloquence, power, and force, oratorical or sonic force. It happens to have been the mountaintop speech, which he delivered on the evening prior to his assassination. The event took place April 3rd, 1968, at the historic Mason Temple Church of God in Christ in Memphis, Tennessee. Then the largest black auditorium in the American South. Fifteen years before King spoke there, Paul Robeson gave a freedom concert in this majestic and then still new space. King arrives in order to support a strike by sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, and this is his second visit to Memphis in support of this strike because the first ended with violence and had to be abruptly abandoned. So though I will play a video clip now of just a few seconds, a minute or two, of this mountaintop speech, I want you to pay attention first to the visual components of this video, and then secondly to the, audio, to the audio. Now it will be tough to resist attention to the audio, but see if you can in fact recognize visually, see some things visually that you may not have had opportunity to do before. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight. That we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Remember, think visual for a moment. I've looked over 
and I've seen the promised land, brings to near conclusion King's April 3rd, 1968 address at Mason Temple Church of God in Christ. It doesn't matter with me now, he preached, because I've been to the mountaintop, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. It was a rousing address, distinct from the earlier I Have a Dream production or speech, inasmuch as I've been to the mountaintop was an intensely cooperative production between speaker and audience. And yet, despite the spectacle of the speech-making moment, we've mostly neglected to note the visual language upon which arguably the success of the speech and certainly the success of its ringing, reverberating conclusion, in part, depends. I looked over and I seen the promised land. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. In the Memphis Address, King casts his eschatological hope metaphorically according to a vision seen from a God's eye view. King's Exodus idea could only have been underscored and made movingly vivid that night by the elevated dais from which he preached. All five foot six inches of the man must have seemed to hover sightline high before the whole jubilant crowd of witnesses. From a certain point of view, it is King's last speech, performatively perhaps his most magnificent, that invites us best to see how King sounds. So frequently is King pictured here and elsewhere Declaiming like Isaiah's vision of the Lord, high and lifted up, that it seems likely that the space allowed his voice also conditioned him to see from a certain mountaintop angle, first the possibility, then the slow realization, visually at least, of the very beloved community that was so central to his social and theological thought. What else could have inspired King but to stand in the elevated place in this magnificent architectural um, location, a church in Memphis, as I said, the largest auditorium, black auditorium in the American South, which seats fully about 5,000, its architecture is modernist in this sense, that unlike the traditional Protestant church architecture, the pulpit in Mason Temple is constructed as a near theater in the round. 
Not only then is it elevated, but it is nearly centralized in this magnificent space. You, you can look at the image and see um, how high its interior is. And though today a flat ceiling exists um, at um, just at the place where the rafters um, are present in this image, one can only imagine just how acoustically brilliant this space was for the kind of voice that King and Robeson and Bayard Rustin and perhaps Mahalia Jackson and Coretta Scott King had which is to say that there is in this moment a beautiful marriage between architecture and voice. And the memory of King's voice, the success and the power of this speech making, one that many people claim is the foreshadowing or registers the foreshadowing of his death 24 hours later. This visual king, king as the object of vision, but king also as the looker, as the one who gets to see, who gets to see the slow unfolding and the, the inspired embodiment of the beloved community seated in front of him as you're seated in front of me and to his side and around him. The beloved community is there, is taking shape. King sound is in a strange and oddly put way seen in images like this. In other words, so much public speaking may well have helped hone King's seeing as well. His consciousness of the visual strategies of protest, that is, as much as the vocal and oratorical devices of prophetic proclamation. In fact, I mean to suggest that these and similar images of King's preaching and speech-making may have visually anticipated, perhaps even improved on his more ceremonial memorialization in D.C. granite these many decades later. And of course, I mean to refer to the memorial 
um, to Dr. King in Washington. In each such image, King does not fail to replicate the pose of that figure classicists refer to as the petrified orator. In each such photograph, King might be said to cut a figure by enacting the eloquentia corpori, or bodily eloquence, of adlocution, the classical gesture of oratory, from a certain point of view then, not only this king or this one recall Roman oratory, recall Cicero and Quintilian, but the robed king would seem to come to nearly approximate the togate orator, the exemplary Roman citizen whose stature depends significantly on his ability to hold forth oratorically in the public. It would appear visually then that a certain classical something should inform King's sound. Now, just how classical King's oratory might be, I am inclined to leave to the extraordinary systematic study of King's speeches and sermons um, by Richard Lisher in his book of 1995 called The Preacher King. And in Dr. Lisher's book, he says that whenever King reflected on his rhetorical gifts, he regularly repeated the conventional principles of, or of oratory um, as if, Lisher said, he plowed the furrows of Cicero and Quintilian. Surely the classical then, given to him at Morehouse, perhaps, but most assuredly at Crozer Theological Seminary between 1948 and 1951, is to be heard, if not as logos or word, then certainly as echo or sound in King's pictures. By the way, it's worth saying that at Crozer Theological Seminary, King uh, took a few preaching courses, did rather well, but in his public speaking class 
earned the lowest grade, a C plus in his entire Crozer uh, career. It's an odd, an odd fact. Um, but perhaps King found it difficult to fully internalize these classical oratorical practices and ideas without bumping up against the vernacular black oratorical ideas and practices that he learned from his father and his grandfather and Benjamin Mays, the president, then president of Morehouse College. King rarely gave credit to the rhetorical inheritance, his, his black rhetorical inheritance, perhaps fearing that he would not be taken seriously, but it is clear that he had some oratorical training in the classical tradition while he was a student at, um, at Crozer. Dr. Lisher goes on to say more about this uh, inheritance of kings, this, in fact, this double inheritance of king and the tension that obtains between the classical and the black vernacular. I want, though, to set that aside briefly, however interesting it remains. But I want to try to orient us all to what my former colleague at Duke, Fred Moten, calls the sound of photographs in images of King holding forth, in images of King preaching or preparing to preach, or occupying the pulpit, or standing behind the podium, or in that classical gesture of Roman oratory. These photographs invite us to think of the sonic, because they are about nothing so much as preaching and speaking, they are about nothing so much as a dynamic interaction between speaker and audience. In fact, I want to call attention tonight, if time allows me, to four discrete categories of sound in the photographs or that, that are suggested by, implied by, given to us, offered by photographs of King preaching and teaching. I want to ask you tonight to consider, of course, King's voice, the grain of King's voice, the texture of King's voice. King's voice the, as the Greeks would call it, the echo of it, 
which is the sound of it, is as important to his impact on us all as the radical democratic principles that that voice gave to us so eloquently. The sound of it. That's one category, his voice. The second category I want us to think about is the antiphonal reply of King's black church audience, or what we might call the counter-echo. And I want to insist on echo because echo, far from being reducible to the reverberations and vibrations of sound, fundamentally is the name given by uh, technicians in this category, technicians in this field, for sound itself, a multiplicity of sounds that cannot be uh, uh, reduced to words. So we're talking about the counter echo of an audience who may be interested in replying sonically with something more than just a nod of the head. And as you heard in the video, um, there are sort of bursts of applause and bursts of encouragement and cheering and affirmations. Some as simple as amen or right on. But, but and some more like moans mm, of affirmation and grunts. All of these things make up the counter echo that, that, that fill the space. Remember I said history is not mute. History sounds and resounds. And so my hope is that if I offer you a couple of categories of sound, you will understand that King's voice, his echo, is only one such sound that makes up the sensorium inside of which his listeners, his auditors, were witnesses to this speech. To hear his recording, the recording of his voice, is only to hear an imperfect um, replication of what it was to occupy a seat in the Mason Temple Church of God in Christ. You also have to somehow be able to hear the moan of the person seated four seats down and the one who shouts from the balcony. And uh, you also have to consider those sounds that come not from king's own body, the somas, the Greeks would say, but the sound that would come if you're seated close enough from the speaker. So there is a technology of sound that complicates the notion that king is a singular presence and that the sound of that, of that 
that evening, the sounds of that evening come only from him or the Ralph Abernathy who introduces him. No, there is a wide constellation of sounds, a full sensorium of sounds that come from King's own body as he speaks into a new technology, a microphone, and the ways in which the placement of the speakers allow for his voice to be heard in a kind of disembodied way, depending on where you may be seated in the auditorium. You may see King speaking, but you may hear his voice nearby from a speaker. And so you have technology complicating echo and counter echo. And then there is one final category of sound worth my mention tonight. It is the sound of the environment outside of Mason Temple. You see, Landon has helped me to recover the weather reports for that night. And I'll, I'll forego sort of reading those reports to you, but know that it was a, an overcast evening with scattered thunderstorms that endured through the night into the morning. King came from out, came into Mason Temple from a thunderstorm happening outside. Now there are two things to remember about this interesting set of circumstances. The first is that the wind is blowing so powerfully and the ventilation in Mason Temple depends on windows being open, windows that are otherwise shuttered, such that when the wind blows, the shutters clap, and the sound of those shutters is not very different from the sound of gunfire. King, who has already had his life threatened on any number of occasions, can be seen in extended video to be a little jittery, and it makes sense why. It is as if some portion of the power of this final speech depends on King mustering up enough courage to not only stare down the possibility of death, but to sound down the possibility of death. Such that when he reaches the climax of this speech, this sermonizing speech, he has mustered all of the power he can to face not just the possibility, but the very likelihood, and we know his impending death. He says, I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Given the space, King must have known in this era before 
bulletproof plexiglass protections. And every time he stood to speak, every time he stood to speak in a public or semi-public way, he was taking his life in his hands. All right. Um, I'm going to move as swiftly as I can because, honestly, I've sort of lost track of the time. <laughs> okay. Um, but, 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 but I want you to know the, that the, there's the, a category of environment that's also important. Um, and, and the second point I wanted to make there is Landon discovered not only um, were there thunderstorms, but just a few miles north of Memphis, tornadoes ran through the northern part of Memphis and north of Memphis. And in that moment, in that time, one of the ways that the public was alerted to the peril of an impending or approaching tornado was to signal uh, the civil defense alarm, the civil defense signals. This, this, this blaring horn that could be heard all across the city. Now this is familiar to me because I grew up in a small town just outside of Baltimore with a volunteer fire department. And whenever there was a fire at any point, we heard this siren that could be heard all across and beyond our town's limits. Now, of course, these were not originally designed for tornado watch. They were designed uh, during the Cold War as an alarm for nuclear weapons or an alarm to, uh, to, to sound nuclear threat. But by 1968, they're also being used. So, so I'm, I'm saying all this to say, imagine the cacophony of sound out of which King constructs this beautiful oratorical symphony, right? Um, that he has to press through the, um, the fear that someone at any time could stand as they would for, as they, as they did to a Malcolm X in the auditorium and take his life. That the sound of the sirens was disruptive. That the shutters blowing open and closed, approximating the sound of gunfire, must have uh, certainly been disconcerting. And yet, he would have to and did succeed, as I said, to not only stare down his fear, but to sound down his fear in this place that was pitched perfectly for his voice. One of the things I have the pleasure of being able to do, I will be able to I will be able to have the pleasure of doing soon is digitally recreating the Mason Temple Church of God in Christ in 1968. Knowing its dimensions and the material it's made of, um, digitally 
um, that space can be recreated and King's voice reinserted. And we will be able, ultimately, to be able to, to hear more faithfully what it must have been like to sit in Mason Temple in the first row, which will sound discreetly different from what it would be like to sit in the last row, which will be discreetly different from what it's like to hear him from seated, if you're seated behind him or if you're seated in the balcony. And this is something I'm very, I'm very excited about. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to, I'm going to do a little reading, so, so bear with me. Um, I don't want to worry your patience here. Um, here's another image of King uh, preaching. Regularly misrecognized and presumed to have been the view of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, this 1957 photograph, probably taken for the British Picture Post magazine, features King speaking from the same famous platform where he would deliver the I Have a Dream address six years later. The prayer pilgrimage for freedom, observing the third anniversary of uh, the historic Brown v. Board of Education ruling was the occasion for King's picture. Here, the near silhouette outline of King's clerical robe pictures him ceremonially straddling the line, as it were, between judge and priest on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. But his facelessness, preserved by the photograph's reverse view of him, and his ample sleeves flowering with the demonstrative stretch of his arms are an invitation to contemplate not only an oratorical subjectivity, but an apparitional or ghostly one as well. A king whose death is not so much predicted as past. Though I've been concerned uh, to limb the outlines of both the visual and uh, oratorical king made implausibly spectral and spectacular at once by the repeated prolepsis of that momentous death to come, predicated, or predicted rather, ad nauseum with every menacing click of the camera, I cannot avoid what my, my colleague Fred Moulton has avowed in that remarkable book of his called In the Break. He says this, if the, dominance, if the sensual dominant of a performance is visual, then the aural or the herd emerges as that which is given in its fullest possibility by the visual. The visual and the aural are before each other. Another uh, philosopher put it this way. He says, between the visual and auditory dimensions lies an abiding tension, one productive of a reciprocity according to which the voice and vision each exists for the other at its field's horizon and thus as the condition of its possibility. One way of thinking about what a photograph is, is that it is precisely the full suppression of sound. Like by definition, photographs are not heard, are not oral. So that it is recognized as photograph, not only because we have a certain kind of cultural familiarity with the object, but because it emits no sound. So the visual then, as in the photograph, creates the condition, the possibility for the oral or for the hearing. It, it exists at the horizon of the very condition of possibility of hearing. We understand hearing to be the subordination then, if not the absence 
of the visual itself. I want to suggest then that whether by content, as here, or by the very nature of the photograph, photographs bear a phonic or sonic quality about them. Um, and again, you can, you can see it by virtue of King speaking, you can see it by virtue of the, the sound technology, the microphones, and so forth that are seen in this particular class of photographs. These photographs depict nothing less than the photographic beforeness of black vocality, a negative sound or sonority at once prior to and productive of King's visual capture on the camera. Ironically though, platform, pulpit, and the hard metal apparatus of the public address system of the 1950s and 60s do not fail to hint at this repressed remainder buried behind or somewhere buried deeply within the pictures of King preaching or performing speech making. The amplification apparatus especially so wholly naturalized into the scene of speech and performance it passes nearly unseen, deafens the view to the very sounds helping to achieve the picture as such. In other words, amplification may have augmented the tonality of King's voice in Washington and Memphis, but it, it is also certain that the technology helped to mute the constant clicking of the state threats in cameras, recorders, timers, and triggers, and all their sonic terror. So, um, what, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting, of course, is that uh, there's something that is made the clearer by amplification technology, but there are other things that are um, overshadowed by, or we simply don't hear. And when we look at pictures of King speaking or preaching, it's as if we don't see that they're all about technology, all about sound, all about amplification. Let me um, do my best to bring, to, to bring this to some conclusion by returning us to the Mason Temple event. Uh, just ignore this. <laughs> Um, and perhaps I, it, will, it will be best if uh, I do what I can to sort of tie up these, these ends here and then address any questions you might have um, about not only what I've said but where this project seems to be going. Um, I've been talking a bit, I talked a bit earlier about the grain of King's voice. And I wanted to call particular attention to uh, the soaring vibrato speak, whose pathos and authority so many black clergy, elected officials, and public intellectuals have sought and failed abysmally to replicate. King's vibrato, the play of overtone and resonance, lament and ecstasy, is the approach to a black meta-voice bearing the weight of accumulated black injury, rage, and creative suffering. 
When we hear King at Mason Temple Church of God in Christ, we're reminded of nothing so much as that passage in James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, in which he said, remembering his own boyhood days as a preacher, nothing equals the power and the glory that I sometimes felt when in the middle of a sermon, I knew that I was somehow, by some miracle, really carrying, as they said, the word. When the church and I were one, their pain and their joy were mine, and mine were theirs. They surrendered their pain and joy to me, I surrendered mine to them, and their cries of amen and hallelujah and yes, Lord, and praise his name and preach it, brother, sustained and whipped on my solos until we all became equal. Carrying, as they said, the word is no throwaway expression. It has, of course, a vaguely obstetrical echo about it, but uh, more immediately in carrying, as they say, the word is an acknowledgement of the object status of the voice, as if the voice is both a part of and distinct from the body which would seem to be, uh, where it would seem to uh, dwell. Um, it would seem that in Mason Temple Church of God in Christ, King's heavy-chested 173 pounds was perfectly barreled, hollowed out by a voice not altogether his for carrying, as they say, the word. So the, the voice is in him, but it's not entirely his. Built for it or no, one thing is, is certain, at Mason Temple, King delivered, spoke the sound of blackness itself. From the pulpit there, the spectral voice carried, testifying to terror seen and unseen, though still yet devoted to the eschatological hope of freedom that was his consistent text. King's vibrato resounded to the rafters, exemplifying that phantasmatic vocality which floats freely in the mysterious intermediate domain and thereby with the aid of audio, architecture, physical gesture, perhaps even costume, the dimension of omnipresence, reaches the dimension of omnipresence and omnipotence. If the picture of King performing preaching or speech making is, as I have maintained, the picture of King imperiled, each photograph bearing the shadow menace of the assassination which is to come, then even on the night prior to its deadly achievement, King speaks in Memphis as from the dead. His tremolo, I seen the promised land, a death rattle and a visitation of spirits. If photography may be looked to sound off to reproduce not only the object of the camera's attention, but the noisiness of that which no camera can ever really reproduce, then watching King performing, preaching, or speech making is at root listening. Not to King proclaiming the dream, but King dreaming, dimly picturing the promised land as he gives voice to a vision of integration and democracy literally glimpsed directly under his nose and heard in dialogical echo from the mouths of the cheering multitude before him. And if Roland Barthes is right, from the great cloud of witnesses, one hears faintly singing somewhere just above King's head. I'll stop there.
I hope I have not worn your patience. You'll forgive me. This project is so much with me, and um, there's just so much to say and so much new I want you to hear um, that it's tempting to um, be excessive. I hope I have not been too excessive. Um, is it appropriate to yeah, ask for questions? Okay. So while we're getting the, um, the technology to cooperate with us, speaking of independent subjectivity, right, technology seems to have its own mind and does what it wants to do. Um, I, I wanted to explain, at least in part, that this entire project is inspired almost entirely by about two seconds of that video you saw. When King says, I looked over and I seen the promised land, for me, this entire project is trying to unpack that collision between sound and vision um, that happens when he says seen. Because we hear, musicologically, the vibrato in his voice there, um, and we know that the language, the word that is stretched is a visual term. Uh, and so trying to make sense of this over the course of King's career, uh, and also being very, very aware that King was a pretty shrewd visual strategist, that he used um, uh, television especially to the advantage of the movement, um, and photographs of him to the advantage of the movement, um, knowing that though makes us, or invites us, I think, to also think further, as, the, as this, this book project does, about um, this, this, this sonic uh, shrewdness. Um, and it will also, it will also um, do some of the work to recover um, the, the legacies, as I mentioned, of Coretta Scott King um, and his mother, Alberta King, because uh, I, I want to argue that there is a, um, an overlooked woman's influence on King's uh, career and, and performance um, that's worth recovering, that's very important and worth recovering. When King tells the story of the tradition out of which he came, he comes, or when others rehearse the traditions out of which he came as a preacher and orator, that tradition is always entirely male. Um, but if you consider the echo, the sounds, there's a feminine echo that I also want to recover. Let me take some questions, though.
Thank you for a very inspiring talk. Um, are you thinking about a multimedia book? I mean, a book is another example of something that doesn't speak in some sense, although it can. Um, but what, what do you, how do you imagine the project translating into a book? So as, I, as I'm imagining it now, it's a, it's a two-part, um, materially speaking, it's in two parts, right? There's the traditional book, inside of which, though, I hope to encourage reading as an oral exercise as opposed to a visual one only, right? I'm I want to invite those who are reading this work with their eyes to actually read it with their ears. Um, um, in ways perhaps that um, poets always do, but um, those of us who are not poets um, but are engaged in critical uh, or otherwise expository work um, don't necessarily do. The other is, is the, um, the digital project that I mentioned. Um, that is that I'm, I'm, I'm beginning just a new relationship with um, a couple of gentlemen who are, who are experts at this, who are in computer engineering and in, um, um, in music and musicology. Um, and bringing these together, and architecture, bringing these together in order to uh, create virtual, um, a virtual historical um, setting that lets us, again, appreciate the nuances obtaining in sound when we consider sound historically. So in some ways, the King Project is both pretext and paradigm for something bigger, which is about sound and history, or about the ways in which we rarely seek to recover the sounds of history that could help us understand it, comprehend it, that could, ironically enough, that could illuminate it the more clearly. Um, so that second part, Ellen, thank you for asking the question, is still formative. Um, it, it's, a, it's a new relationship and um, um, it, happens in, it happens in labs um, and I have to defer to others um, who, who create the sort of virtual structures um, but some of the decision making about what happens, what gets explored in those virtual structures is left to me. So it will be, it'll be collaborative in that respect as well. Thank you. Simple question here, but I expect from this night on, we're all waiting for the product. Uh, how Thank soon you. do you think that will be available? <laughs> um, and, uh, how's, how, what's our best access to it? Well, um, the, the book project will probably um, not be ready for another year from here, from now. Okay? But I'm hoping that by late fall, the, there, there's some version of the virtual project that will allow you to enter that space. Um, um, it, it, it will be like entering, um, it'll be like entering into, you know those, the, the theaters had those black, black box rooms? It'll be like entering into that and, and, and having a seat with any number of acoustic, uh, digital acoustic devices around 
and programs that will play for you to hear, again, what it's like to hear from a particular point of view, even outside of the building, right? So you can be in the storm just outside of the building and hear um, what King would have heard that he mistook to be gunfire. So I would love for it to be done yesterday. <laughs> but I'm going to hurry up. I will. I'll do my best to hurry and get this. No one wants it done faster than I do. Um, trust me. Um, but thank you for the encouragement. Thank you very much. Yes, yes sir. I think we are looking forward to that. Uh, I was wondering if there was a recording of the mountaintop speech in your childhood home. And if not, when you kind of first remember how far back your recollection of that? That's a great question. I don't, I don't think there was one in my childhood speech. Um, I mean, in my childhood. Um, in, in some respects, I think as a child, I probably, I might have been traumatized by it, frankly. Um, um, not only because of the context of violence around it, um, but because it, it took me a while as a kid to um, face the fact of death emotionally. Um, I, I do remember, this is not exactly your question, but I do remember in 1972, I think it was, um, when Mahalia Jackson died, her funeral was televised. And um, I think that was the first time I became aware of the mortality of humans, but especially, I think, my parents. Um, and now that you mention it, that, that's an important memory for me. Um, now, when I heard the mountaintop speech for the first time, it's hard for me to remember. I am sure I was already at the high school age um, before that speech was ever shared with me. Um, and I probably knew about it before I actually heard it. Because of course, when you, there, there's so much sort of lore around King that I would have heard that he anticipated his death before it actually happened, or that he prophesied his death. And this would have been the speech in, in which folks would say he prophesied his death on the night before he was assassinated. So I would have known about it before I actually heard it, but I think I was probably already in high school. Um, that's a great question. Thank you for it. Yeah, P Professor Wallace, uh, I wanted to get your reaction about King's visit to Charlottesville in 1963. You know, I was uh, seven years old at the time, and he was uh, hosted by the great local civil rights leader, Paul Gaston, and uh, then African-American student, Wesley Harris. Sound played a role in that visit. I don't, I don't know if you're aware of that. Mm -mm. But as they walked back over Monroe Hill, he gave a speech in Cabell Hall. And, you know, the invitation was tepidly received by the administrators here because the white people were worried about black violence when it was usually white violence. But as they walked back down toward the hotel, there was a loud sound. Um, Paul Gaston, who's Caucasian, thought it was the backfiring of a car. Mm. And Wesley Harris thought it was a gunshot, and he went to shield Dr. King. It turned out that Gaston was right. 
But the reactions that they had and how different they were speaks volumes. And yeah. he apparently intimated to those two at that time, and I've spoken to Professor Gaston about this, that he said, and this was 1963, it's going to happen. Yeah, thank you for that. I have read only one account of um, King's visit to Charlottesville. Um, um, and until you spoke, some of the details uh, had, had escaped me. Um, but I would say a couple of things quickly. Um, the, the episode you describe, and many others like it, including um, a visit to, to Duke University, um, not long before his visit to Charlottesville, if I remember correctly. Um, in a very real way, we are talking about an environment of terror, right? And we're talking about the reaches, then, of a racialized terrorism um, in places like Charlottesville, in places like Durham, that any of us would otherwise have imagined was nominally safe because there were no great riots. And yet on a very mundane level, everyday level, um, that was, some places remains, an American reality. Um, one I don't think King ever took for granted. I mean, when you have crosses burned on your lawn, when you are threatened, you know, the threats came from um, official people and unofficial people, right? Um, King visited um, Duke, or was allowed to visit Duke, only after George Wallace had come to Duke um, for the student government and gave their um, a very vitriolic, vitriolic speech. Before then, he hadn't even been, he hadn't been welcome for the very reasons that he was less welcome in Charlottesville. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Wallace, thank you for <clears throat> the lecture. It was really interesting. And, and I'm really interested in your in the uh, technology that you've described that's emerging, and um, especially because I think that at the same time that scholarship is now open to this sort of recreation, there's also a, a burgeoning like market of entertainment products based around the same idea of virtually recreating some sort of world. And, and so I'm wondering how uh, the experience you're describing of going to sort of be in the place of 
King's final address. Hermeneutically, is is that see, how do you see that? Is because it, it, it seems to me that some people could experience it as a type of historical um, scholarship, but other could experience it have a religious experience in 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 that space, or or even I don't know. I mean, I guess so. I guess I'm wondering is is there some sort of ethical aspect that's introduced into that um, that type of experience and offering it and sort of curating it almost in a way um, has is that something you've been thinking about with it um, to to be honest I, I'm sure that is work that I will have to do um, it's it's inevitable um, but as yet I don't have a fully formed position on that I, to I'm excited about what the possibilities could be for scholarship. Um, but you're right to point out that what may well be intended for, for scholarly sort of consideration um, can, also, can also somehow get deformed or reformed in ways outside of my control. The best I can do, as you, as you suggest, is, is offer a, an ethical orientation toward, toward the project. Um, and I suppose that in offering that orientation, it, like the project itself, will also unavoidably enter into a conversation about technology and ethics writ large, right? Um, so that, that's something I'll have to spend more time thinking on and thinking through. But it's a, it's a, it's a, vital, a vital question, and I thank you for reminding me of it. Professor Wallace, I uh, just have a, a comment. Well, first of all, thank you for an outstanding uh, talk. And this comment was going to add on to uh, Dr. Battle's comment about um, Dr. King speaking in Old Cabo Hall. And I was just going to mention that uh, we will have a media event on January 23rd. It's not open to the public, unfortunately, for the unveiling of a plaque that will be placed in Old Cabo Hall um, in honor of Dr. King's 1963 speech. Mm. Um, and um, the Harris brothers will be donating this particular plaque. Um, Wes Harris was a student in engineering at the time, was one of the students who invited Dr. King. And uh, Dr. King, there were 900 people in Oak Cabo Hall that night in 1963, and he ended the speech by stating, maintain faith in the future. Maintain faith in the future. So, mm. Okay, just an item of uh, information. Thank you. So, yeah, next time you're all in Oak Cabo Hall, hopefully it'll be there. January 23rd next week. Uh, and at, I think 5 o'clock in this building, we'll have the Memorial Slave Laborers event. Um, so, anyway, hope to see you all back yeah. here. Thank, Thank you, you very again. much. Thank you very much. I'm sorry, that's, that's the last question we can take. Uh, on behalf of Lifetime Learning and the Martin Luther King Celebration, I want to thank you, first of all, for a wonderful evening. Thank really you. appreciate it. Oh. Thank you. Thank you very much. And if you all could just take one...